Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I saw a pretty cool chart this morning on the Daybreak newsletter. Do you read that uh, every day, Paul, the Daybreak newsletter? I do. Yeah. Um, they feature different charts uh, in macro views. And one that I saw was uh, going back 20 years, whenever we go into a rate rising cycle, yep. you start to see the yield curve go down um, or tighten. So, um, for example, the spreads between spread between the twos and the tens just starts to tighten up and maybe even at some points invert every single rate increase cycle that we've had over the last 20 years. Now, that maybe is bad news for the economy because of what it signals and because of the fact that we're already looking at a yield curve that's going down as the Fed um, is expected to raise for some people saying now five times this year. Mm. What does that mean? Let's go to Jay Hatfield right now. He's the CEO uh, at uh, Infrastructure Capital Advisors. They have a number of funds under management, but he has a long career on the street as well as uh, MBAs from Wharton and UC Davis. He worked at SAC Capital. Yep. Uh, he was a principal in investment Stevie. banking at Morgan Stanley. Incredible, really, CVJ. So I appreciate you spending some time with us. What do you think about the economy now? It looks like uh, we're trending down in some ways at a time when the Fed is about to tighten. Well, uh, first of all, Matt and Paul, thanks for having me on your show again. We think the critical judgment is whether the Fed is going to over-tighten. Uh, the, the data is that in the 19, uh, I'm sorry, of the 19 tightenings, 11 have ended up in recessions and eight in a mid-cycle uh, soft landing. So that's the critical issue. And I think the minutes really disturbed the market because there was a lot of discussion about quantitative tightening, which is a disaster. But we're more optimistic than the market because we don't think they've focused on the fact that Biden will have appointed five out of the seven FOMC members soon when they get approved. But that doesn't mean that the market won't weaken, you know, obviously weaken from here. 4,400 is a critical area, I would, I would note as well. All right. So, right Jay, I, I guess the issue for this Federal Reserve, it seems to me, and I'm just a, a novice here, that the signaling, the communications been very good. Yet the market, as you said, uh, noted has maybe even thought about the Fed might go even further than what they've signaled. How, how do you think this Federal Reserve will proceed from here? Well, I think that you, what you could see, which would be the bull case, is that they go and correct a little bit of this, what we believe is a misconception about the minutes. Just keep in mind when the minutes say certain participants, well, we don't know who, who those people are. They could just be the regional Fed governors, which tend to be more hawkish. So there could be a correction in the communication, because we do believe, like your, one of your prior guests, that financial conditions have tightened. Mortgage rates are 80 basis points higher than they were prior to the capitulation on transitory. So it's possible that Powell tries to soften the message and maybe take quantitative tightening off the table, which is horrendous for the market, because liquidity is what really drives the market, not interest rates. Good point. So if there's more reduction in liquidity, then you know we think there could be a crash in Bitcoin and 
some of these other momentum type investments. That's a, a great point. Uh, I was just reading a couple of days ago, Mohammed Al Arian's column where he asked um, when Fed tightening is going to hit financial conditions or why it isn't now. And one of the reasons that he stated is it's really about the liquidity and not about the flow. Um, what, what what do you think about the levels here? You mentioned 4,400 and the market just started, well, I guess it's been kind of in a downward trend today um, since the open, and then it bounced off of basically 44.19 and is now coming back up pretty dramatically. Well, yes, the other easy rule is to be long during earnings season, at least when the economy is strong. So typically, well, we've had a few misses, obviously, Netflix being the poster child, but normally earnings are, are good and the companies. Uh, retain their their best <clears throat> releases for uh, the actual earnings call, so they're they're good news. So usually it pays to be long um, during earnings season. So it makes sense it's bouncing, but if we violate the 200-day, then usually there's a lot of hedging activity that occurs. So it's a risky uh, level in the market. What's your favorite sector here that you and your team are working on right now? We really prefer. Um, are focused on preferred stocks. Okay. We think that not just value, like there's been some discussion that even you know value stocks are revived. So we always, if we're thinking about value, we always want to get paid to wait and have income. So preferred stocks, we're not that bullish about the market this year. They have high dividend yields and low volatility. Like today, um, most preferred funds are sort of flattish, down like 20 basis points. So you get high income and low volatility. But we definitely think this year is going to be adult swim. So if you buy stocks, don't just buy value, but also buy income. So you get paid to wait. So even if the market's down, your um, income is still stable. All right, Jay, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate getting your thoughts there. I like getting paid to wait. That's a good feeling, I think. Jay Hatfield, CEO, founder and portfolio manager of Infrastructure Capital Advisors here. All right, let's talk energy. I got WTI crude at 85 bucks a barrel. Where is this thing going? I mean, if I'm going to fill up Matt's, you know, Ford F-150, it's going to cost a pretty penny. Regina Mayer, she is a principal global sector head for energy for KPMG, and she was a former officer in the U.S. Army Reserve, which is very cool. We appreciate her service there. Regina, where is oil going here? I mean, I've got some demand picking up. I have OPEC saying pretty disciplined. Is this going higher? Well, it's really all over the map, and the predictions are starting to indicate that it will go higher. Uh, we think triple-digit prices are in range because we see more upward price pressures versus downward price pressures. Uh, supply is constrained. I, I think OPEC Plus is not necessarily being disciplined. I really think they're at near or at capacity. Really? So we don't have a global safety valve. Yeah, yeah. I think that's partly why they're appearing to be so disciplined is uh, word on the street is they they're, can't they're make any more. Struggling. They're it's, struggling. It's yeah. uh, by the way, OPEC go on the terminal. You yeah, know, this, another right? one. No, of course it's not. a great uh, function. And you can see that what Regina is saying is spot on. Correct. I mean, there are very few members of OPEC that have any spare capacity. There's a graph in the lower left hand oh, corner. That is very cool. That OPEC shows go. you. Um, so it's interesting to me. The demand side, Regina, is telling in terms of the global economy. Everyone's worried about um, the yield curve coming down and, you know, 
Omicron plus tightening of the Fed. But if if the market's willing to bet so big on oil, it's got to say something about global growth, right? I think that's fair. I mean, there's pent up consumer demand for consumable goods, for travel. And a lot of those consumable goods have components that all come from hydrocarbons and from a barrel of crude. Uh, And with supply constrained and demand expected to increase, that's why you're starting to see triple digits potentially come into the frame. And then you add into that the inflationary pressures, increasing cost of capital, some of the geopolitical hotspots. It all leads to potential upward momentum for oil price, at least in the near term. Regina, how about our good friends in Texas and Oklahoma, the shale patch folks? I kind of expected them to not be as disciplined as they have been. I expected them when they saw $70, $80 a barrel to start, you know, putting some holes in the ground. I think you're right. It's definitely coming. Um, And also our friends to the north, like Canadian rig count in one week went up 50 rigs. The U.S. is up 13 uh, week over week. We are in the range where it will spur marginal production. And that expectation is that U.S., Canada and Brazil will start to help fill the gap. We've seen so many headlines about the popularity of EVs, especially in Europe, the growth in sales. Is that making a dent at all in demand? No, no, not yet. It's so marginal. It's such a it's such a blip in terms of overall fuel consumption that it cannot yet make a dent in liquid fuels demand. How about Russia? Just real quickly, what should we expect from Russia in terms of their discipline? Well, I, I, who are they going to discipline? Is, yes, <laughs> they're at capacity too. Okay, um, you know they they may say other things, but what we're hearing is they if they would pump more if they could. All right. Regina, thank you so much for joining us. We always appreciate getting your perspective on these global energy markets. Again, WTI crude oil, 85 bucks a barrel. Whenever I see that, I just expect those wildcatters down in Texas and Oklahoma to start drilling, but they've been pretty disciplined to date. Regina Mayer, she's a principal global sector head of energy at KPMG, giving us the thoughts here. Again, raising the, the specter that we're going to get, you know, triple digit oil. It's been a long time since we've seen that, but uh, you've got rising demand on a reopening global economy. And then to date, you've had the supply pretty well fixed by OPEC, OPEC plus, and even by the uh, U.S. producers. So there you go. It's a commodity supply and demand. All right, let's talk supply chain. We talk about that a lot. It's an issue for so many companies really on a global scale. And I think about supply chain concerns. I think about Big cargo ships stranded off the coast of L.A. waiting to get into port. I think about not enough truck drivers to get the the, the stuff out of the ports. Uh, but it's also that last mile, getting the stuff to your door. And the question is, you know, what can technology do? How can technology help this whole process? Bain Hunter, he's a CEO and board member of Get Swift. Bain, thanks so much for joining us here. Tell us just a little bit about what Get Swift does and how you kind of work with the supply chain. Uh, good morning, Matt and Paul. Thanks. Thanks for having me uh, on. So, uh, Get Swift, we operate in about seventy countries across well, almost seventy verticals, uh, so different different industries. And what we do is we provide uh, SaaS software as a service, um, automation for last mile delivery, including workforce automation and a series of other connectivity services. So you could say that we touch everything from your local mom and pop store at the corner all the way to large multinationals. 
Now, what I have to do uh, point out is what we don't do is we don't actually provide uh, drivers. So what we do is effectively partner with uh, the companies and the service providers to uh, automate everything via technology. So how hectic have the last two years been for you? <laughs> um, think of it this way. I would put it by saying that two years have equated to probably 10 to 15 years in normal times. Everything kind of got hyper-compressed, to put it mildly. Uh, and I'm not by just way, talking Bain, about what, what was it? What was it like? I mean, talk to us about March um, of 2020. Did, was it just all of a sudden <laughs> – Business is going bananas. It, it it it's more than going bananas. Really, what you had is I think you had the breakdown. What I call organizational inertia. Right. Anytime you would try to talk about how the market is changing, consumer behavior was changing, you would invariably encounter resistance. Not in all organizations, but some. All of a sudden, literally in a period of a few months, um, consumer behavior didn't just expect; it, they demanded it. And for a lot of our customers and a lot of, I would say, businesses out there, the realization was a very simple realization. Either you evolve and change and you provide the service or you're going to go by the way of the dinosaur. And it was really something to behold. I haven't seen anything like it probably since the days of the, you know, the dot com when, you know, everybody started going on to the, what do you call, World Wide Web. Bain, you know, we th as we think about the supply chain challenges here, and again, it's a global issue. Mm -hmm. Does this call into question the whole concept of just-in-time inventory? Uh, yes, it does. And I think there's a very important lesson in all this. You know, and I'm going to use an analogy. And the analogy is that, you know, the lack of pain does not mean that there's not a fundamentally something wrong underneath or that, you know, you still have some form of disease. So what really the pandemic in the last two years have done is they've stress tested the system. And what has come out as a result of that is that, first of all, one, uh, it's not unified. Two, um, it's, it's really not being managed effectively from, let's call it a risk horizon uh, aspect of it. And the third aspect that I would also point out, it's disjointed. Technology is really not unified. There's not visibility in the full supply chain system. And that's exactly what we're seeing right now, both in terms of, you know, what we see on the shelves and in terms of the cost of goods going up. What is the future, uh, Bane, of, of your industry? I mean, is there a blockchain involved somehow? Um, is there drastic change coming up? Yeah, I would say you would have to kind of, you know, segment it a bit. The first one is workforce management, right? Um, there has to be fundamentally a change in terms of the way, uh, you know, we are evaluating and we're managing the workforce in terms of the supply chain. The second is I'm a huge believer in automation and I'm a huge believer in emerging technologies, whether there be green. Uh, I know you guys were talking about hydrogen, you know, and EV vehicles and what have you not. I think that is a very important component. But together with that, I think the other component is going to be AI. Uh, and or machine learning. In other words, what portion of what we do it can be automated? And then the last component is, uh, you know, let's call it future modeling. What does technology tell you what the upcoming needs for the supply chain are? And then how do you manage that to the full life cycle, whether it's farm to table, whether it's managing something from overseas, or dealing with, you know, your basic obstacles that you have once your goods land at the port? All right.
Very cool stuff. Uh, I, I find it fascinating. Paul and I have been talking. We love um, supply chain. Yeah, a lot about the supply chain. Uh, obviously, everyone has um, over the last two years, which is why it's so great to get some time with you, Bain. Thanks so much for joining us. Bain Hunter is the CEO of Get Swift, the uh, ticker GSW. Andy Marsh joins us. He's the CEO of Plug Power. And uh, this is a company that is innovative in terms of alternative energy uh, sources, specifically hydrogen and fuel cell technology. Andy, thanks so much for joining us. Um, It has been an amazing time for your company and for alternative fuel sources. But, you you know, a lot of people hear hydrogen fuel cell and they think, isn't that, you know, and all, all also ran. Isn't that done? Didn't batteries <laughs> win? What do you say? Well, I would step back and say, I've, you know, we've been, Plug has been doing this for 25 years. <laughs> uh, we have 50,000 units out there. We're the largest user of liquid hydrogen. And I think when you step back uh, and you look at Walmart distribution centers, in those distribution centers and around the country, 25% of the food that got on people's table during COVID, somewhere along the line, touched a plug power product, and you can't say the same for lithium batteries. When is, though, you know, um, I started out as a cub reporter in 1999 in Frankfurt, and around that time, BMW had these hydrogen fuel cell 7 series running around Germany, uh, and they said, you know, in giant letters, hydrogen fuel cell on the side, and I thought, man, that's got to be the future they're not doing that now, though. How come we don't see it coming to, you know, consumer vehicles? Well, I think where you're going first, hydrogen, you know, plugs learning that hydrogen really has its greatest value in commercial activities. And we have a joint venture with Renault, you know, in France, uh, for which is the second largest battery electric vehicle, commercial vehicle company in Europe. And we're putting on the road this year three fuel cell power vehicles uh, for moving goods, for moving people at airports. And by the year 2030, we expect to have about 100,000 of these vehicles on the road. The development's happening, the technology's there, and Plug's been deeply involved in all of it. So, Andy, how supportive is U.S. policy to date for hydrogen fuel and hydrogen use is there some things need to change or, or or is it pretty accommodative supportive you know one of the um, you know advantages i've seen in the united states that uh, you know plugs work closely with people like senator schumer for 20 years in setting the uh, setting a policy in place in the us for fuel cell tax credits you know at the moment we're building the largest green hydrogen network across the country. We have one in Alabama, New York, one in California, one in Georgia. And with those hydrogen plants, uh, you know, if you look at the uh, what was in the Build Back Better bill, and I think you saw have been seeing that uh, the climate provisions are still strongly supported by Senator Manchin, who's been deeply involved in writing the green hydrogen aspect of that bill. With that bill passes, the U.S. will have the leading policy in the world to support the deployment of green hydrogen. And no company is going to be in a better position than Plug because, 
quite honestly, we're building it now. And greener, I imagine. You know, there are, uh, I guess, different kinds of hydrogen when you look at the production, right? Um, is, is there a greener way to do it, a better way to make hydrogen? So plug, uh, absolutely. And that's why we're building the first nationwide network. And even in Europe, we're doing activities today. But if you take a look at the plant we're building in uh, Alabama, New York, it uses hydroelectric power. If you look at the plant we're building in Texas, it uses wind power. It's a feedstock with plug power electrolyzers to create the hydrogen. And in California, the facility's running off uh, solar power coupled with plug power electrolyzers. That's the way to do it. I was over at COP26, and even when you talk to utilities, they know ultimately the hydrogen needed for the world needs to be green, and that really gives plug a differential advantage. So, Andy, I'm looking at your stock. It's off on a trailing 12-month basis, about 65%. What's the market concerned about with your company? Well, I think that uh, when you you know take a look First, I'm going to take a step back and say, when you start thinking about a world where the world's going to be 20% renewable hydrogen, that, look, there's ups and downs, there's issues with the feds, but long-term, this company has an incredibly strong balance sheet that can execute on its business plan with the balance sheet it has today. We ended the year with over $4.5 billion in the bank. Uh, I think, uh, you know, we're feeling uh, some of the impacts of the down, downward spiral in the market. We believe it's going to recover soon, and we believe that, uh, you know, as many analysts, I, I had an update call, on, update call on Tuesday, and the analysts, uh, you know, 13 analysts came up and said, said plug power is the stock you want to own in this space. And that, I think, is because we've been doing it so long. People know we're not an overnight success. We know how to make fuel cells. We know how to generate hydrogen. We know how to uh, uh, put vehicles on the road. Yeah, I'm looking at the ANR function, Matt, on the Bloomberg Terminal. 20 buys, 5 holds, and 1 sells. So still street pretty supportive here of this story. But is there a path to profitability, Andy? Oh, ab- absolutely. I, you, 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 you're going to see late 2023, 2024, that the company will be profitable. All right. We appreciate it, Andy. Thanks so much for taking the time to get on the phone with us. Andy Marsh, he's the CEO of Plug Power. It's a publicly traded company, symbol PLUG. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.